session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulaqui, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. And I'll get to calls if they are for me in a little bit, but I'm very happy that I'm going to be joined by a special guest to start the show. She is the author of the book of the week from about a week ago, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. And that the author of that book is Dr. Rachel Hurst, and I'm going to be bringing her on shortly. But before I do, let me tell you a bit about her. Dr. Rachel Hurst is a neuroscientist and leading world expert on the psychological science of smell. She is also actively involved in research related to taste, food, and motivated behavior. Dr. Hurst has published over 80 original research papers, received numerous awards and grants, co-authored scholarly handbooks, and is an adjunct professor in the Medical School of Brown University and part-time faculty in the Department of Psychology at Boston College. She is also a professional consultant to various industries, frequent speaker for media events, and an expert witness in legal cases. Dr. Hurst is the author of several academic and popular science books, including the college textbook, Sensation and Perception, now in its fifth edition, The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell, which was selected as a finalist for the 2009 AAAS Prize for Excellence in Science Books, That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion, which was an editor's choice in the New York Times Book Review for two weeks, and analyzes the emotion of disgust from culture to neuroscience, and her latest book, which we'll be talking about today, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, which was the finalist for the 2018 Readable Feast Awards, and explores how our senses and psychology govern our perception of food and the experiences and consequences of eating. So Dr. Rachel Hurst, thank you for joining me today. Hello. Oh, yes. Hi. Thank you yes. for we're yes. on here. Thank you, you so much for joining. For yes. Oh, it's great to be on. Thank you so much. So, um, yes, you've done a lot of research on things related to different emotions and how they can relate to our senses. But in this book, "Why You Eat What You Eat," you explore the science behind our relationship with food. And I read the book, and I was fascinated by so much. I mean, it's really jam-packed with so many um, different studies and issues related to eating. And while most of us might think that eating or even taste uh, is something that just occurs in our mouth, uh, you explore how so many of the different senses and how, how many different things can actually play a part in that. Um, so maybe you could tell us what motivated you to write this book. Well, that's a great question. I mean, the easiest answer is to say that I love food and I love eating. <laughs> uh-huh. But uh, it's also the case that, as you mentioned, my research has been in the sense of smell for several decades now, and I've also moved into taste and flavor and food and emotion. And so it seemed obvious and natural, especially most people think when they think about their senses, you know, smell is 
obviously involved in eating as is taste. And so that seemed like a natural segue also to move into the topic of food now that I had greased the wheels with my <laughs> previous books. Because mm-hmm. actually, believe it or not, the emotion of disgust is a taste-based emotion. Mm-hmm. When we make of the face of feeling disgusted, it's actually the exact same face as we make when we taste something really bitter. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, the, and I was reading the research you you had on that. That and even it could be something from something moral, uh, like you know, a political view you disagree with, or yeah, like food that is disgusting. And in both cases, it's like something you're trying to repel or you know get rid of because you don't want to take it in because it feels harmful. And it's interesting that connection of something that's physically harmful to something that feels emotionally or morally harmful or bad for us, and we have a similar uh, reaction. Um, and yeah, I think what's really amazing is people, again, would think that the mouth is where we enjoy food, but you talk about how important smell is, actually, in the way that we experience food. Yeah, so it's actually a misnomer. When people say the word taste, mm-hmm. almost always what they mean is flavor, right. and flavor has to do with your nose. So in fact, taste is just the very simple sensations of salt, sour, sweet, and bitter. And everything else comes from our nose. So in order to tell that you're eating a chocolate bar versus a piece of butter, for example, <laughs> something like melting in your mouth that's, that's creamy, you have to have your nose. It's your mm. nose that tells you that that is something sweet and chocolatey and delicious. So, sorry, your nose doesn't tell you it's sweet, but your nose tells you that it's chocolate and not just any old sweet thing. Similarly for savory, if you were eating French fries or if you were eating chicken, it's your nose that tells you the difference between those two things. And so what happens is we perceive aromas in our mouth actually while we're chewing, and that happens as a function of the fact that the aromas in the food we're eating are released in our saliva, and they travel up to the nose through the back of the mouth, and it happens at the same time as we're tasting. So we're tasting salt, we're tasting sweet, or we're tasting sour or bitter at the same time. And that sensation fuses together. So it feels as though it's coming from our mouth, but really all that aroma is coming from our nose. Right. Yeah, and that's why uh, when we're sick or we have a cold, foods don't taste as good because that pathway is blocked. Of uh, You know, when you're exhaling and the aroma could go to your nose, it's blocked by mucus or whatever else is there. And so as a result, we don't really, food doesn't taste as good. So it makes sense that it doesn't taste as good because that sense of smell is missing or is not as strong, I should say. And speaking of the sense of smell missing, uh, you talk about people who have completely lost their sense of smell and what they don't realize is how important smell is to eating until they have that experience and their experience with food becomes very different as a result. Yes, losing your sense of smell can be extremely traumatic. And unfortunately, most people don't realize this. In fact, the American Medical Association only values losing your sense of smell as between 1% to 5% of your life's worth, whereas losing vision is valued at 85%. Mm. So it's really, but that's really quite wrong because our sense of smell is deeply tied to our quality of life in so many ways. And food is just actually one of them. But it's also tied to our memories, our emotions, our sense of self, our interpersonal relationships relationships. You know, the list goes on. It's basically involved in everything with life. But the interesting thing about people who lose their sense of smell and then turn, you know, to food is that 
they have this very, very frustrating experience where, let's say they are craving a char-grilled steak, mm-hmm. but the only thing that they're perceiving when they're eating it is salt. And this becomes very dissatisfying. And although you might think that people would sort of go off eating, mostly what happens is that actually people gain weight because saltiness, sweetness, creaminess, which is from high-fat foods, are still pleasurable sensations. And since that's the only pleasure that they can get, they tend to turn to foods which are higher in those macronutrients, plus our nose and aroma and flavor actually makes us feel more satiated. Mm -hmm. So when we get more aroma and flavor from food, it seems richer, it seems more intense, and we tend to need to eat less of it than a more bland piece of food, let's say. But when we're missing that, people tend to overeat. So even without totally losing your sense of smell, people with a diminished sense of smell tend to eat more because of the fact that they're not getting as much bang for their buck. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's, and uh, the sense of smell, it's so interesting how important it is for eating and that we might not realize that. And even, uh, you know, this idea that our sense of smell or uh, the strength of our sense of smell is weaker in the mornings and then peaks around the afternoon, early evening, which is usually when we tend to have our biggest meal of the day, dinner. But that was something I never had thought of until I saw that in your book, that it actually changes throughout the day, unlike most other senses, which essentially are going to be equally as strong no matter what time of day it is. Yeah, so that's actually really new research that we just did at at Brown University this past year, and we're the first to discover that our sense of smell is actually not a constant. Now, nobody has done the the test for the other senses, so it may be the case that they vary too. Mm. But the dogma is that everyone presumes you can hear just as well at 9 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon and see just as well and so forth. And people believe that about smell as well until we did this study looking at circadian phase and found that just like you said, our sense of smell is weakest uh, about approximately between 2 a.m. and 10 a.m. in the morning and stronger um, in the late afternoon, early evening, which, as you said, coincides with the main meal of the day. And this has been the case sort of having this main meal in the early evening throughout human history. And one could speculate that as a function of the fact that having a more intense sense of smell leads to greater appreciation of flavor, that if there weren't a lot of food around and, you know, things weren't so abundant as they are now, that you might be satisfied with a little less because you could smell more and you were getting more sort of intensity from the food you ate. But the flip side of this is actually something serious in that we have to have auditory fire alarms. You cannot rely on your nose to wake you up while you're sleeping if there is a fire. So it's very important for people to have real auditory fire alarms in their house. Right, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I, I remember hearing you make that uh, point very clear that because of that, we might not be able to perceive as well using our sense of smell. And, you know, we could talk about smell itself for so long because there's so much about that. But another one I thought really interesting is something I actually experienced just this past weekend after reading this book was having tomato juice on airplanes. And I realized before I even read it that all the times I've had tomato juice, probably 80% of the time it was on a plane. And then reading it in your book, I was like, okay, so there is some scientific reason about that or, or explanation for that. Can you tell us why people prefer tomato juice and Bloody Marys on planes? Yeah, so this is actually another really fascinating finding that has to do with how our sense of hearing affects how we eat and our mm-hmm. experience of food. 
And this has to do with the fact that being on an airplane, first of all, it's a high-pressure cabin situation. That actually increases nasal congestion, so you're getting less aroma. Mm-hmm. But also really loud. It's about 85 decibels, sort of mm-hmm. the average hum in an airplane, which is like standing relatively close to a you know a lawnmower. So it, people don't realize it because you habituate to it, but you're in a very loud noise environment. And it turns out, well, that's very interesting also, is that the cranial nerve involved in hearing the corda tympani is actually also involved in our sense of taste. And it seems as though research has found that the loudness of the sound in an airplane dampens down our ability to taste salty and sweet. So when you're eating food on an airplane, it never has very good you know, taste from those perspectives, but it increases the perception of the sensation of umami. Umami is this controversial sensation that may or may not be a basic taste. I don't think it is because it's too confusing with salt. It's very, very similar to salt from a, from a sort of sensory basic perspective, but other people consider it to be a basic taste. But in any event, it is what gives a lot of food a kind of a savory quality, and it's naturally found in various things like mushrooms bread, and also tomatoes. Mm. And so because this umami sensation is augmented in this loud noise that you have in an airplane, the, the taste of tomatoes is extra good. So tomato juice, for example, which is all crushed tomatoes, tastes better when you're in this loud noise environment, which is why people tend to order tomato juice drinks on airplanes. And so yeah. this research was originally spearheaded by actually Lufthansa Airlines that was wondering why people were ordering as much tomato juice as beer <laughs> on airplanes. <laughs> and so they first uh, started the research, and then some other researchers at Cornell University picked it up and, and studied how sound was influencing our taste perception. Yeah, that was so interesting to me because smell, even though maybe we underestimate how important it is most people we still might think it's involved because we think about the smell of food but you know hearing i would think was not involved at all or i wouldn't imagine that's involved in my experience of food but reading that uh, you know that research was really interesting and then remembering that that's something i do that i rarely drink tomato juice but for some reason on planes i drink it more than anywhere else i was like yeah. oh it, it makes sense so that was fascinating for me and you know we're just about at a commercial break but after the break uh, maybe we can talk a bit about the other senses and how they're involved and also how even our thoughts can affect how not only foods taste, but amazingly how our body metabolizes or how quickly we metabolize food. So I'm again joined by Dr. Rachel Hurst, and we're talking about her book, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dralaqui. We'll be right back. Back again, I'm with author Rachel Hers of Why You Eat What You Eat, the science behind our relationship with food. So let me bring her back on. Dr. Hers, you're there? Yes, I am. Great. Okay, Thank great. You. So we were talking before about how various senses affect um, our eating, not just taste. And we talked about sound a little bit, but also 
our vision has a big impact on eating too. And I think you mentioned this, I think it's a Chinese proverb, if you eat with, we eat with our eyes first. So maybe tell us a bit about how vision plays a role in our eating. Well, vision plays numerous roles, and one of the most uh, easiest and simplest to understand, I think, is that when food looks good, we think it's going to taste better and we value it more highly. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about this is that, you know, for example, you know, plating, which is actually a course in culinary schools, does make a difference. So when food is put together very artistically, very, you know, nicely, it looks as though the chef has paid attention to how they're presenting their food to you, we perceive it as going to taste better mm-hmm. than that exact same food with all the exact same ingredients if someone took a fork and just mashed it up on the plate. And so this really shows that we have these expectations that are based in what we perceive to be good and high value that actually can influence our sensation of tasting the food. And this also plays out very powerfully with wine tasters and people who think that they're, you know, wine connoisseurs mm-hmm. when they read labels that say things like, you know, this is some grand cru and, you know, some like 98 points <laughs> from, you know, the wine classifications or some expensive bottle, they will perceive that wine to taste better, to have better flavor, to be higher quality in all kinds of dimensions than the exact same wine with a label that indicates that it's not such good quality. So we use our eyes to make judgments about how good something is and how high quality it is on the basis of what we think things are supposed to look like and how appealing it is to us. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the wine studies were interesting. I've even felt this with bottled water. Like there's some of my friends that, and even myself, oh, Fiji water tastes better. But I think it's because the bottle looks a certain <laughs> way and it may be the sound of it's Fiji water. But I, I always wanted to do like a blind taste test and see if people can actually tell them apart. Uh, but I think that was an interesting one because wine is something that people who are connoisseurs really value that they can taste the difference and they know good wine from bad wine but uh, you showed it even there was a study i think that they colored white wine red and people tasted it as red wine even people that were connoisseurs of wine they couldn't tell the difference they saw different notes when it had a red hue which i thought was interesting Yeah, these were people who were wine students in France, Mm -hmm. and they were given white wine under two conditions. One, when it was regular white wine, and the same, and then the exact same white wine with red food coloring, which has absolutely no aroma and no taste whatsoever. And they were asked to describe the wine under these two circumstances. And when it was colored red, they described it with all these red wine descriptors. And then when it was a normal white wine color, they described it totally differently as having all these white wine qualities to it. So, yes, exactly. People who are supposed to be educated yeah. in the experience of, you know, in this case, sampling wine were totally fooled by their eyes. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And since we're talking about wine, and it is going back to hearing, but it reminds me of that other study that um, they they were measuring basically how much people bought German wine or French wine, and it was heavily influenced by if German music was playing or French music was playing. And what's even more interesting is that almost no one who bought the wines thought that the music influenced or, you know, they weren't even aware that the music was influencing their decision to buy one wine over the other. But it just shows, again, how many factors play into all the decisions that we make, and many of them are out of our awareness. 
Yeah, so this is what another point that I think I really want to make with this book is that it's not like we're unconscious of these influences. Like, mm-hmm. you can hear the music in the store, right. but you're not having any awareness of the fact that that's actually driving you or priming you towards, in this case, wine selections of a particular culture, or it could be even food selections, depending upon it, what it might be. And so, really, we are impacted by so many things around us that we can perceive, but we're not either paying very much attention to, or we're not realizing how it can influence other things downstream, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like our purchase decisions and so on. Yeah, yeah, that's, that is so interesting. And, and when you said that, you know, this idea of awareness, it reminds me of this idea of mindful eating. And we know that mindfulness is essentially a good quality to have in just every moment of our day if we can be more mindful. But especially with eating, it's interesting because you talked before about how if we really enjoy the food or take in the flavor more, we get satiated faster. We're likely to to get full faster or uh, maybe not have to eat as much. And I know I've been there and many people will talk about inhaling our food. And it's actually funny now that I hear that inhaling because if we inhale it, that means we're not taking the time to exhale and let the aromas get to our nose and have that experience. But it's interesting that if we become more mindful of our eating, we're likely to make better choices enjoy our food more and likely eat less because we'll experience it more deeply and that can have an effect. Does the research show that, that we'll eat less if we're more mindful? Yes. So basically, the more engaged we are with what we're eating, so the more we are focused on eating itself versus being distracted and doing different things while we're consuming. And actually, the worst case scenario is watching television because and having any food nearby, especially, you know, this is often the the danger for many people is, you know, after dinner, they sit down in front of the TV and there's chips or there's popcorn or there's candy or whatever on the table, and they don't even realize it. And then the bowl is empty because they're not paying any attention. They're not paying attention to either how their body feels or to the experience of eating, so they're not getting the pleasure from the food itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're concentrated on the food, and this is a main meal as much as a snack, you are experiencing the food fully, you're experiencing the flavor fully, you're getting the full satisfaction from it, and then you can feel yourself also eating and know that now you feel full, now you've had enough, now also Maybe there's still food available, but eating it is no longer quite as pleasant. And so why do you need to keep eating it if it's not, you're not getting the same kind of pleasure mm-hmm. out of it? And so you stop. So it's really important to be paying attention to how the food is making you feel, if you're getting the right pleasure from it, and how that is leading you to either eat more or less. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's another application of how... Uh, meditation and mindfulness can benefit us in, in, in another area of our life. And, um, you know, there's so many things about the visual that were interesting to me, like uh, I think rounded both bowls or plates and using a spoon makes things taste sweeter than if we use like a fork or square plates, um, which I thought was interesting. And even the color red, if the plate is red. So I think like the ultimate would be a rounded red plate with a spoon probably would make things taste the sweetest if i'm not mistaken that kind of maybe maybe it's simplifying it too much but i thought that was interesting how those subtle things can make a difference too 
No, you're absolutely right. And this is because of the sort of associations mm-hmm. that we've made through our experience with things around us. And, you know, foods that are around it tend to be sweeter. So like cakes and cupcakes and ice cream scoops, all those things, you know, many fruits, they're all rounded. And they are also highly correlated with having a sweet taste. Mm-hmm. Whereas more angular foods, so meats and cheeses and, you know, even chips, uh, tortilla chips, that kind of thing, they're typically more angular and so we have made associations between angularity and saltiness. And so, yes, so rounded plates and round things tend to sort of prime our perception of sweetness. And red, because also from the sweet uh, fruit experiences we've had, we know that red is associated with ripeness, riper fruits are sweeter. So we'll assume that, let's say, the dark red cherry is going to be sweeter than the pale red cherry. Mm -hmm. And so those kinds of things can also impact us when we see food served on something that's red. However, red is also a cue both in nature and also in our built environments that tells us to pay attention. You know, we see red, it means stop, look around, caution, you know, check things out vigilance and so on. And so surprisingly, red can also have the impact on us of making us take stock of how much we're eating and actually curb our intake. Mm -hmm. So one thing to do, you know, if you're having a party where people are going to be grazing and snacking and wandering around, and you might think that your guests might not want to be overeating is if you had small red plates, because also on small plates, we put less food. And if they look at their plate, they're going to see that it's red, and they may be sort of realizing, okay, hey, I'm eating. I don't need to eat as much. Because there was this really interesting study done where people were served pretzels on either blue, white, or red plates while they were doing some other task, and they were told to eat as many pretzels as they wanted. And they ate the fewest pretzels from the red plate, even though they said they liked the color of the plate that and the blue plate the best, better than the white plate. So whereas the blue and the white plate people ate equally and more than on the red plate. So there's something about red that makes us caution and kind of pay attention, and that can also be helpful in the context of food. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at my, the desk I have in front of me here is red, so I'm wondering if that has any impact. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll keep that in mind. But, you know, one study I want to make sure we definitely get into, and this is less about our kind of external senses, but really even more about the internal functioning of the body, which is quite amazing. And that's the milkshake metabolism study. So this one really blew my mind. And every time I think about it, it still amazes me. But can you tell us a bit about this study? Yeah, so this was an amazing study that was done by Alia Crum when she was at Yale University. She's now at Stanford, and she studies placebo effects. And what she was looking at in this case was actually whether or not the placebo effect could influence our metabolism, Mm -hmm. which is something we think of as totally not in our control. You know, it's one thing to think of, you know, we have a placebo effect. We can think, you know, oh, this doesn't hurt as much, or maybe I feel something else, or more alert because I had, you know, decaf coffee and someone told me it was caffeinated coffee. But to actually have your metabolism change just as a function of believing something, this seems like it would not be possible. Mm -hmm. And yet she showed that it was. And in her case, what she did is she had a milkshake 
that in real life had about 340 calories, so, you know, moderately high calories. And in one condition, she had it labeled with uh, labels decadence and luxury you deserve. And the label said that it was 620 calories and it was like, you know, high fat, fabulousness. And then in another condition with the same participants, the exact same milkshake, it was labeled Sensi Shake, 120 or 140 calories, and no added sugar, 0% fat, all these, you know, healthy attributes to it. And what she measured in this study was ghrelin levels. And ghrelin is a hormone that's secreted when we're hungry. It's sometimes called the hunger hormone. And so when ghrelin levels are high, we want to eat more. And typically what happens from the point of view of calorie intake with ghrelin is before we eat, ghrelin is high. And then we eat something with, you know, fairly high calories, ghrelin level drops. And then when ghrelin levels drop, actually our metabolism kicks in so that it can metabolize the food we've just consumed. And what Alia Crump found was that when people drank this 340-calorie milkshake and they believed it was 620 calories, their ghrelin levels plummeted after consuming it and their metabolism revved up. But the exact same milkshake with this moderately high calorie level, when they believed that they were only consuming a very low number of calories, their ghrelin levels didn't budge and their metabolism didn't move either. So the idea here is if you could convince yourself that something not very caloric was actually high in calories, then you'd be burning lots of calories all day long and not feeling hungry. <laughs> but the problem is that it's actually very hard to trick ourselves. It's like tickling ourselves. It's kind of hard to do. Right, yeah. So if we can... It, but, you know, it involves deception, but you almost wonder if they can just start mislabeling certain things and give people the wrong ideas that make super healthy foods seem like they're not so good for you. It might trick us. And speaking of labeling, even that has an effect. I think I remember it was low salt. If it says low sodium, that just makes people think it tastes really bad, right? Almost no matter what, it kind of just takes uh, makes people think there's less flavor there. Yeah, so actually all this health labeling does a disservice to our experience of food. So Mm -hmm. just like you said, when people see low salt or reduced salt, they think that whatever they're eating is going to taste less good, even when that's just a manipulation. And in fact, there's just as much salt. And when we see labels that say, you know, low calorie this or 0% fat, you know, yogurt and so on, we're actually, again, you know, potentially dampening down our metabolism when if we're eating something that's still reasonably high calories, our metabolism's not going to function. So all these labels that tell us about healthiness actually don't work very well to either make us appreciate food as much as we could or to have our bodies responding to it in the ways that are most efficient. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, where do we make draw that balance? Because of course, people should be able to know what choices they're making about what they're eating and how exactly. unhealthy or healthy it is and what the you know nutritional content is. But then we have to be aware of these ways that it could backfire in ways that we might not expect and so you know finding that balance i think is interesting um you know i really hope we can talk a bit more if you're okay staying online a bit after the break and we could talk a little more to wrap things up because i know you know you wrote this book of course to share all this research and people find it fascinating and interesting but then there's ways that they can possibly apply it to their own life that I think are important. So can we maybe talk a bit after the break? Sure, yes. Okay, thank you. So again, I'm on the air with Dr. Rachel Hers. Her book, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, is available anywhere books are sold. And we'll be back after the break with her. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back.
welcome back. Again, I'm joined by the author of the book, Why You Eat What You Eat, Dr. Rachel Hers, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. And, uh, you know, when we talk about food, a place that many of us get the food uh, that we have in our homes is at the grocery store. And there's some interesting research about what happens or our experiences there. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Sorry. So I'm okay, not sure. um, did, I didn't hear you. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I was just talking about how um, when we're talking about food, uh, where most of us get the food we keep in our homes is at the grocery store, and there's a lot of interesting research about our experiences there that you could maybe talk about a bit. Yeah, so there's a couple of really fun things that I discovered while researching this book about grocery store environments and how the whole shopping experience can influence what we purchase and how we how we shop, actually. And one of them had to do with using reusable bags. And now this is no longer an issue, I know, in California, though some states still allow you to bring, you know, not bring your own bags, and there's no penalty for it, and you can, you know, just get your, your stuff put into your thin film bags. In fact, today, when I was at the grocery store in Rhode Island, I had my own grocery bag with me, but the cashier started putting stuff into one of the plastic bags, and I, said, I had to say, no, 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 <laughs> I have my own bag. But I know in California, that you actually have to bring your own bag. But if it's the case, like it is in Rhode Island, where you can bring your own bag of your own free will and therefore feel virtuous that you are doing something good for Mother Nature and not contributing to the landfill by adding plastic, which is terribly difficult to break down, you actually shop differently than if you don't bring your own bag and, like, you know, just depend on the store to provide the the plastic bag for you. And what this research found was two things. First of all, not very surprisingly, I would say, is that people who tended to bring their own bag were more likely to buy organic foods and products. And so that sort of makes sense because people think of organic as being environmentally conscientious and ecologically responsible and so forth. And so, you know, that sort of makes sense. People that would be bringing their own bags would be thinking more about the environment. But what was also found was that if you bring your own bag, again, of your own free will, and another thing is that this isn't the case if you're doing, like, the weekly shopping for the family and you have your big grocery list and, you know, you're, you're sticking to that. This is if you're buying food just for yourself and you're, you know, the casually wandering around the aisles seeing what looks good. If you bring your own bag, you are more likely to pop some extra treats into your shopping cart than mm-hmm. if you don't. So you're more likely to buy more cookies or ice creams or impulse buy chocolates or whatever the case might be if you're bringing your own bag. And the idea behind this is that we are basically giving ourselves a proverbial pat on the back for doing this good right. deed of bringing our own bag by buying ourselves little extra treats. Hmm. I think that's so interesting. And um, you know, there's a lot of research showing that that when we sometimes we do something good, we feel like we have the I don't know if you want to call it right or we've earned to do something bad. And even that that's something that I think is interesting that it shows that at some kind of unconscious or not really in our awareness level, we think of eating those foods as bad. And in a way, they are bad for us, but almost maybe morally bad because here it is we're doing something that's good in a virtuous way of something good for the environment. But we feel like it gives us this license to do something that's quote unquote bad. And another thing I I think might be interesting is, I think this is where humility might play a good part, that we should try to do good things, but maybe we should be aware of how good we feel they are, and that we don't, you know, kind of make our heads get too big of, look how amazing the thing I'm doing is. And I wonder if if that mediates this relationship in some way, the way we feel about how good the thing we're doing. 
and it might all be out of our conscious awareness. So I don't know if that plays a part in any way, but it's just something I thought of when I read that research is that I wonder if that plays a part. And, and then also something like this, if once everyone starts bringing their bags, I'm assuming that effect might become less because it won't seem as virtuous. It'll just be like something accepted, something that everyone does. Right. I think that you make a really good point. And I think that there's a couple of things maybe to unpack there. I mean, at one level, you can think of, you know, buying yourself a treat is just like, you know, well, I just, you know, I kind of deserve this because right. I've just done something good. So it's just a treat as opposed yeah. to feeling, you know, I'm actually now I'm going to do something bad, where yeah. some other research actually does show that we tend to do that. But I think that you're also making a very sort of good moral point in that we should just appreciate the things we do that are good for the good things that they are in themselves, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than feeling this sort of sense of balance. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is, you know, we are this mixture of good and bad, and we tend to have an extremely good gauge of where we are all the time in this balancing act, and we tend to balance ourselves <laughs> out, you know, sometimes in ways that might not be so great. I mean, even from the point of view of dieting, one of the best predictors for gaining weight while you're on a diet is how much weight you've lost in the last week. Mm. So people who have lost weight in like a week of dieting are more likely to gain weight the following week because we have this sort of balancing perspective that mm-hmm. we're doing even with our bodies, even when we think we're, we're trying to lose weight overall. Right. But the virtues and vices also plays out in a kind of a, a fun way in the grocery store in terms of the geography of how we travel within a grocery store. And some other research that actually had radio frequency trackers on people's grocery store carts found that after being in the produce section and buying fruits and vegetables, the next place in the grocery store people were most likely to go was actually either the ice cream or the alcohol departments. <laughs> and so there you can, I think, more clearly say that's balancing a virtue with a vice. Yeah. But you know, not, I mean, buying yourself a little extra, you know, chocolate or something like that, you could think of that as also, no, that's actually could be also good. Because mm-hmm. I don't want people to think that, you know, I think people should eat anything they want to, just not too much of it, and to be thoughtful about it, like you said, mindful, and also to think about variation. So we don't want to always be eating the same thing, even if it's something healthy. We want to vary it in terms of getting the most macronutrients as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that 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 was interesting research, too, of how people, and you and I were talking on the commercial break, that sometimes the produce and the alcohol or the sweets are not right next to each other. So that means people were traveling quite a distance. It wasn't just the next aisle over that they were getting to those things. But again, it seems like this is happening on an unconscious or a level that's not in their awareness, but we can become more aware of it. And now when you put the produce in, you don't go straight to those uh, those kind of uh, vices or those foods that you think maybe you shouldn't be eating. And, you know, that brings me back and I wanted to give you a chance, you know, we talked about what, what motivated you to write this book. And I know also there's definitely some take-homes or some things you hope people get from reading the book. Maybe you could share what those are. Yeah, exactly. So I think my whole point in writing this is this is not a diet book, but it's really mm-hmm. to just make people aware of all the things that are impacting them in their environment, so this, their, how their senses are interacting with the world around them, how their mind and their mood, there's a lot we didn't talk about with respect to mm-hmm. how emotions mm-hmm. can influence our eating and so forth, and our social environments, the people that we're with and so forth. And I want to make people aware of all these things so that then they can understand, sort of just like what you would said, you know, I'm in the grocery store and I've just put some tomatoes and some grapefruit into my grocery store cart, uh, my 
going to the ice cream section now? Do I need to go to the ice cream section now? You know, why am I doing this? So that people can basically be armed with this information so they can reflect for a minute or two and then feel overall that they're in control over their relationship with food rather than feeling that food is controlling them. Yeah, and I think that's wonderful. Again, it's about that awareness and being armed with that knowledge and information that there's so much more influencing and impacting the decisions that we're making uh, that we're not aware of. And then, but we can become aware of those things, and that's why I think this book really is quite interesting. You'll, you know, read some studies and research that might make you even laugh or chuckle, and some that will really make you scratch your head that you can't believe it's true. Uh, And I hope people will read this book, Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. And Dr. Rachel Herz, I really appreciate you joining me uh, with your very busy schedule to talk about this book. Well, it's been a pleasure, Farid, and thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much, and look forward to uh, whatever future books you write and hopefully having you back again. Okay, that would be great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, that was Dr. Rachel Hers. Her book, Why You Eat What You Eat, is available wherever books are sold. I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So again, a big thank you to Dr. Rachel Hers. Her book, Why You Eat What You Eat, was the book of the week a few weeks ago. And then it kind of just worked out this way that last week I didn't end up doing my show. And um, I was able to get in touch with her and so happy she accepted to join me today. So I hope you'll check out her book. I also want to mention the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show, Together Closer by Giovanni Frazetto, The Art and Science of Intimacy in friendship, love, and family. And at the end there, when I was talking with Dr. Herz, we were talking about this idea that we often think we know why we do what we do, but we aren't aware of what is influencing it and impacting us. And it makes sense because our brains, which really still is, I was hearing some scientists talk about it over the weekend, but it's the most complex thing we've we've ever tried to study in that anything else we look at, it's just the complexity and the intricacies of how it works and everything it does and why and how it does what it does, we still don't quite understand. And ironically, we're trying to study this thing with that same thing. We use that same brain in our heads to try to study the brain. And so there's probably going to be some limitations in that sense as well, which uh, we should keep in mind. But for me, when we look at all this research, it reminds me of how we have to constantly be aware of and question and try to understand better why it is we do everything that we do. Many people just think, oh, I like this because I like it, or I act in this way because that's how I want to act, or I do this, or I feel this way because that's just how I feel. And I'm all about being yourself and owning who you are. But what I always say is we don't want to stop at the what, and we want to try to understand the why. Go a little bit deeper to understand why am I doing this and not doing that. Why am I feeling this way? Why do I create these types of relationships? Because there's a lot more we can learn from that why. And sometimes when we unpack that why, we become more aware we might decide to make other choices. 
Because even things like moral issues where we feel like, I feel this way, or actually, I, maybe I'm jumping the gun, I think this way because it's the right way to think about it, we don't realize that very often it's because we actually feel a certain way. So when it comes to something like gun rights, we might think it's purely based on logical reasoning that we've come to our conclusion. But we have to be aware that there's an emotional component to why you think the way you think or which side you agree on. And this is why when people debate these issues, you almost never see change happening, especially in a, in a short-term basis, because people are not thinking about this issue only, they're feeling about it too. So even if you try to convince them logically, emotionally, they won't be convinced. And as a result, you won't see a change. And that's why people will sometimes just get stuck logically. You'll tell them, well, what about this and this and this? And they, you can tell that logically they're stumped, but still they say, no, it still has to be that way. This is the way it is. And uh, Jonathan Haidt has done some research on this, and he calls it moral dumbfounding, which is when we have an emotional reaction, or the way he would maybe make the conclusion, is that we have an emotional reaction to a moral situation, and then we ad hoc come up with logical reasons for why it should be that way. And then even if we take away those logical reasons or our logical arguments, we are left morally dumbfounded, where we can't really explain why we think something, but we say it just has to be that way. And it's actually more because we're feeling something about it than we're thinking about it. So we have to accept that as much as we want to think we're these really smart and logical beings who are making decisions based only on rationality and making choices based on rationality, that, well, we actually maybe aren't all we think we're cut out to be. Just like I was talking with Dr. Rachel Hers about this uh, wine connoisseurs or wine students who thought they really understood wine, but then when really put to the test, we saw that they couldn't differentiate between a cheap wine or an expensive wine or even a red wine and a white wine. Maybe, you know, we don't know all that we think that we know. And because of that, we have to constantly and continuously be searching to understand ourselves better and understand our behavior better. And I've read a lot of books recently and shared them with you that explore the unconscious, or if you don't like that term, the things that aren't in our awareness. Because again, that brain of ours that is so complex and holds so much information and holds so much in it, we can't be aware of everything that's in it all the time. That's why someone could, could tell you about a memory and then you're like, oh yeah, that happened. It's not that you don't know it, it's that you weren't aware of it, but it was in your memory somewhere. And then what they said triggered that memory and it came up. So I really enjoyed this book why You Eat What You Eat by Dr. Rachel Hers, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, because it showed how all of our senses, from sight to sound to especially smell and even touch, uh, and of course taste itself, are involved in our eating and how we experience food, but even how our emotions can influence how we eat and what we eat and how much we eat and how we taste things, and our thoughts play a role in that and, and even who we are around. And I thought that was quite fascinating to make us more aware of what it is that we are doing. So I hope you will read that book, Why You Eat What You Eat by Dr. Rachel Hers. And again, uh, very, very happy to have had her on the show. I know she's very busy, but I'm glad she made the time to join me today. All right, we're reaching our next commercial break. And after break, I'll get to some callers. But our number is 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Duwakwi. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello again, doctor. Hi, thanks for calling. Of course. Uh, I would like to know your uh, advice regarding the situation that uh, my sister and I and two older brothers are going through with our parents. They're, of course, older and they both have health conditions. Uh, my dad has Parkinson's disease, and he's been battling with it for the past 10 years, but uh, it's progressing. And my mom, uh, she's got, you know, diabetes and other health issues. Uh, for the most part, they are able to take care of themselves. They live independently with each other, um, and uh, all four of us pretty much live in other states. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's just been lately that uh, we're trying to make a living situation different for them. and um, But they've been really stubborn regarding this, not wanting to move to a, uh, a place that they have better Iranian community and better connections, family around them. They're obviously set and happy where they are, but we can see that they're not. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting. I was listening to your um, uh, guests, and, and you were having a conversation regarding rational thinking and the way we think. And we don't realize sometimes that our thoughts are not the best and they're not the correct thoughts. And um, it's not the rational thinking. So we are coming to a conclusion, all four of us kids, trying to move them um, because they have family and they have connection in Toronto, Canada, and now they live in the States. And where they're living, um, it's central United States. They don't have that many Iranian connections or family around them, and we don't live there, uh, to move them there. However, with costs and um, health care and everything else, of course it's difficult, but we can make arrangements for that. So it won't be, but they're still not wanting to do that. And it's really making our life um, kind of, I don't know how to say it. It's just kind of very uncomfortable seeing Mm -hmm. your parents going through that. Sure. I would like to know your um, advice on this. You see, they're pushing them too much. What's going on? Well, I mean, you know, I know before you were saying about kind of, you said about rational, correct thoughts. And in a lot of these cases, it's not that there's really a correct thought and there's only one way to think of it but you might have different thoughts than someone else or something might feel more right for you and not for someone else now in this case it's kind of interesting because it's your parents lives so they should have a big say in it but at the same time what they're doing is they're asking for you guys to affect your lives to take care of them and so that part it's about you guys and so it's about finding that balance so what is it that your parents want you guys to do for them to be around them, which is very reasonable, but we cannot be there um, every so often. Obviously, everybody has their life and, you know, mm-hmm. living situation. And uh, they don't ask for it, but we can see that. They've both been lately very depressed, and it's really been affecting them and affecting us. And with my dad's health progressing, it's just, he's, he's been very good. He's been very strong. He's been trying to do his best. But um, since they don't have that many of that Iranian circle around them, and that's what their focus is, that's what they always, you know, obviously Iranian parents, they want to be around other Iranians. Mm -hmm. So they don't have that many 
uh, source around them where they live, and it's I know that it's affecting them. Like if they would go visit family members out of state, they're all happy and good, and their health is much in much better condition than they are right now. And as soon as they get back, they're bored. Um, they they go in that normal lifestyle of just okay, what's next? When mm-hmm. are the kids coming to visit, or when are we going to go out to visit them, or when are we taking another vacation? So it's really impacting their health too, and they're getting much unhealthier. Uh, my mom is getting sick periodically, and uh, dad is just getting frail. So and they don't want to move. We mm-hmm. try to <laughs> come up with uh, family. Uh, sessions to sit down and talk about it and say, okay, this is the best idea. Maybe you guys should sell the house downsize. Um, but both of them are being really stubborn or yeah. they're wishy-washy. If somebody gives them an idea, well, why don't you move here or why don't you do this? Um, so it's been really impacting everybody's lives and mm-hmm. just kind of putting us to pause as far as our life and our decisions wanting to move forward. So, you know, there's uh, obviously a lot going on. One thing is this is what can happen later in life where the parents kind of become the kids and that's kind of how it sounds and how you're talking about it. It's like these stubborn kids won't listen to us and, and do what we think is best. Um, but it, it's also, I feel like part of what's have, you know, you're calling me, it's not so much you have a specific question, but at some level it seems like you have some guilt about this, you know, not giving them what you want. So on one hand you want to do what you want to do, but then you feel guilty about that. So then you don't know what to do. So it's almost like, I feel like you want me to tell you to not feel guilty or that it's okay for you just to live your life the way you want to live it um, and give you in a way that approval or that okay. Uh, But, you know, it it seems that you're struggling with that feeling of, am I supposed to give them what they want or that it's hard to see them unhappy and you're frustrated that they're not making it easier by you know, doing the things that you four kids are asking of them or the way you guys think would be easiest. So do you have feelings of guilt about not doing more for them or giving them exactly what they want? Actually not, to be honest. Okay. I don't have that any guilt because I know I have done my best throughout my, you know, being their child, little, you know, and growing up. I mm-hmm. know I've always been there for them and I have always provided as much as I can on my share and out of four of us, probably I've done it more than others, and my brothers have done it too, and so has my sister. Um, we have done our share, and I don't think there is any regret there later on in life or any guilt right now. It's just a matter of um, when they're, you can tell when they're crying for help, and it's like you're telling them, well, I told you so. I know that you were going to go through this situation, but you didn't listen at the time, and now you know, I'm doing my life, I'm living my life, and I can't take off work and come, or I can't do this, and it's like, it does, that point, yes, it does make me guilty, but yeah. then I think to myself, rationally, I gave them that opportunity, I was there for them, but they were just wishy-washy, they didn't want to do it, and um, so, and I was really hoping that my sister would be listening to this conversation, unfortunately, <laughs> she's out, and uh, I don't think she got any of my messages, so I was I don't know when the rerun of this show will be on. Yeah, well, I'll also upload it. It'll be uploaded tonight to my SoundCloud page and and, uh, podcast on iTunes so she can hear it. But I'm still, you know, I'm still not clear what the question is. And that's why I'm thinking maybe it's also something you want to communicate to your siblings. And it wasn't my uh, suggestion wasn't that you should feel guilty. But I was wondering if there was some feelings of guilt. I think you're, you're having a lot of feelings about this, maybe even some anger towards 
your parents for making it so complicated and maybe a- anger towards your siblings maybe for not, um, I don't know, doing what they can to make it easier. So if you had to kind of boil down your question, what do you think your question is? Yeah, so that's a very good way that you put it. Um, I think, um, should I pursue giving them that um, support and attention of pushing them towards moving? Um, just because I see it, you're absolutely right. They have their life. They're happy where they're at. But we see them happier being at other places in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cost is an issue with them. So all between four of us is going to be some kind of financial support there. And, of course, as healthcare, that will be another issue. But uh, my question is, should I continue just be wishy-washy, just mm-hmm. go visit them, deal with the problems they have, and continue the life that they have now? Because my dad is so down and depressed that um, poor guy, He, I mean, with his health, he's getting to a point that he says, I don't think I have more than five years left. He's 76. And with him saying that, it just makes us all very depressed and down. So I don't know if I should continue pushing them towards this or just mm-hmm. let it be. And, um, yeah. Well, this is uh, where, you know, that's why when I was talking about the guilt before, I think that's what I'm talking about is that you've seeing them get older and being sick. I'm sure it's not easy for you to see that. And so there is this guilt of, am I supposed to do more? but I don't want to do more. That's why you think you're stuck. So the question you're asking me is really in a way one you're asking yourself of what should I do and you're not sure. And that's what's making it difficult. Should I do even more, but no, then I don't want to give up on my life. But then if I don't do anything, I see them suffering and that hurts. And so, you know, this is also a way where it's like the parents and the kids, you have to let them at some level live their life too, as if they're your kids, even if you don't like the decisions they're making, or if you see that it's, making them unhappy you've suggested to them what you think is the best and if all of you siblings are on board with whatever that is you can make that suggestion but if they're not willing to you know you can't force them to move um you know that's not your decision to make unless really they get to the point where they can you make the decisions for themselves but it seems like they can and so you might have to accept them being unhappy or them not being as happy and you know when people go on trips they're always going to get happier and then they come back maybe they go back to life. So it doesn't necessarily mean even living in those other places will make them happy. It's just they're going on these trips. So, I mean, if you can, you, you have to try to detach a bit from that feeling of their experience or what they're going through is on me or I'm responsible to make them happy or make them feel good. If they're choosing to stay there and live the life they're living, we might have to allow them to make that choice even if we think it's not the best choice for them. Exactly. That's that's my problem right now. It's like I want to leave them there because they're both frustrated, especially my dad. He's like, don't even talk about it. I'm at the point that I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. I don't, I don't see it in myself to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom is wishy-washy. She says, okay, we'll stay in another day. She's talking to her family, and they say, why don't you come here? And she's like, okay, let's go. So it's really making it very difficult to a point it's like okay what else can i do to make both parties happy i know that it's very hard in life you can do that you cannot make everybody right. you know happy and make everybody satisfied but we just want the best fitting situation for them although we know that none of us live there anymore and they live in a semi-big house it's not you know 
and um, they're just it's a cost for them taking care of it, maintaining it. Everything is so hard, and they don't want to they don't want to do anything about that situation. So it's just right. like making everybody very frustrated. So I don't know if I should pursue this or I should keep pushing them and tricking them to things or maybe plan it. Because I was thinking about my sister and I, between her and I, and my brothers agree with that too, but financially they can't. They said, basically, you know, we can support you with the move or sell the house. But um, as far as financially, putting anything for them so they can rent something in Toronto while they're there, or they can buy something if they sell well, the house here. Yeah, and all that's if they even are okay with it, with which you're saying they're not. So I think what you said before was very telling, trying to make everyone happy. And it's not your responsibility to make everyone happy. And if your that's parents true. choose to stay there because they want to stay there, that's on them. And that's where I'm talking about kind of detaching and letting go a little bit. Of course, you care about them. You want what's best for them, but you can't make the decisions for them. And you can try to make things as easy as you can or give them suggestions. But if they say, no, this is what I want, you have to accept that. So I get the feeling there's some guilt you have. And then that guilt also makes you angry at them because you don't like the way you feel. And then you say, well, if they just did what I'm telling them to do, they would be happier and I wouldn't feel guilty. But rather than waiting for them to do what you want to do because you don't have control over that, what you might want to focus on is the guilt you have and recognizing I'm not responsible for how my parents feel and how happy they are, and what's going on for them. And I think the fact that they're getting older and sicker, and it's hard to see that, is compounding all of this, because it makes you feel, it's hard to get mad at them when you see them in this weak state, but I think you are angry with them. And if you let go of that guilt from yourself, you'll become less angry at them, because you'll have less to be angry with them about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think you did hit the spot. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of uh, anger right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's making everybody frustrated because at this point, uh, my sister's like, well, this is all I can do because obviously with her life situation, she's a student and pursuing her doctorate. So she's like, this this is as much as I can do. So everything else would, again, probably fall on me or my brothers and mostly probably me. And uh, everybody has their own issues. I've got my things that I'm going through life and... Uh, but you're right, you're right. I think that's the, the anger part, that it's really bothering all of us. Mm-hmm. We're all frustrated. They don't want to do anything about it, yet they complain. They say, yeah, it's, you know, we're, they don't necessarily say it, that they're alone, but you can see that. Mm-hmm. They're, you know. And uh, so your suggestion is just uh, let go of it, let them live the way it is, and just give them that support as much as we can. Yeah, and as mu- not just as much as you can, as much as you want to. Because what you said about making everyone happy, I also worry that you'll take on more than the other siblings do, and then you're going to feel that guilt and resent- uh, that resentment towards that them for that. So yeah. you have to make sure you're okay. Trying to make everyone happy leaves everyone unhappy, and especially yourself, pretty miserable. And so this is something to look at in, I think, all aspects of your life, but especially since you called about this one, to just look at how you're handling this and... What you're describing is kind of a a typical uh, way that we see dependency or codependency relationships play out, but it's that we take too much responsibility for other people's feelings and experiences and what they're going through, and this leads to a whole host of problems, including this thing like guilt that you feel for things that you don't need to feel guilty about, and also anger at someone for not doing something you want them to do when it's it's not your decision to make for them. So there does seem to be some of that, and you know, we could get into your 
relationship with your parents and how it differs from the siblings, but it could be that you're the one that's too close and feels too responsible. And then that's why you feel everything that you're feeling, but letting go and detaching is probably the best thing you can do. Okay. Okay. Well, I just have one more question regarding okay. myself. Just, um, I came out of a 10-year relationship with, that was a, a kind of, it was a divorce. Uh, towards the end, we did get married, but we were together for like eight years. And the last two years of it, we did get married, mm-hmm. American marriage with an Iranian guy. And uh, ended up in a divorce, obviously, it was a very wrong choice to begin with. And uh, it's been two years that the divorce has been over with and uh, a few months since the last time I saw my ex and just kind of going through this um, depressing, you know, um, mood in my life. Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing my best and, you know, doing the best that I can do for my life. And But uh, then again, there's this feeling that I want to move on with my life. I want to start uh, a new life with someone else. So my question is regarding these dating websites. Mm-hmm. I joined this Iranian so dating website. Let me stop you there. I'm going to stop you there for a second because we're actually at a commercial break, but I want to continue with you after the break. And I'm glad, you know, you're change, you're switching gears and we're talking about you now because people who, you know, from what I'm seeing of you focus so much on other people and what they're going through, very often what happens is they forget about themselves and sometimes they do that as a defense. They don't want to face what's going on with them. And so I'm glad you're turning it back towards you because you're the only person that you can have really a effect over and can control what you choose to do and that's what's going to be most important so after the break we're going to talk a bit more about you and what's going on for you and we can talk about the dating sites and whatever else you're going through but just hang on the line okay okay? thank you thank you you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back Back before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, sir. Okay, so... Uh, as I was saying... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's get right back into it. So you're talking about how you've been uh, divorced for two years? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to move on, but then you brought up um, online dating. Yes. Okay. And uh, I am only wanting to stay with our own culture, with our own culture, Iranian culture. And probably that's why everybody, even my friends or family, they're saying, why don't you just try other things? Obviously, you live in the United States, and we don't see you having any problems with communication or any of that. But mostly it's cultural things for me. I do have an old soul, and I prefer to be with uh, an Iranian man. Mm -hmm. And uh, from these dating websites... uh, I haven't gained anything, but there's not much of a serious uh, request out there, I would say. Um, and they're, they're very slow, I would say. And depending on where you live, too, I mean, obviously, I don't live in California. I'm majority of the Iranian culture and community is there, mm-hmm. or Texas or New York. And so it's a little difficult that wanting to find somebody locally. I'm not willing to do a long-distance relationship either. It's uh, something that I've done and I'm over with. I don't want to try it again. And uh, I don't know if it's too soon for me. I, I did go on one date, and I 
did not feel any connection, but felt like that my confidence is so low um, that I cannot even um, wanting to go on dates. Um, I don't know why I'm feeling so uh, vulnerable. I guess it's very normal uh, for somebody who's come out of a 10-year relationship. Yeah, but I, I'm wondering, you know, but, you know, we do talk about time healing and time helping us move on, but it also, what matters is what we do with the time. And um, two years, you know, a 10-year relationship is a long time, so that can take some time, obviously. But two years is also a, a fair amount of time. Something you mentioned, though, before the break was that the last time you saw your ex was a few months ago. So I'm wondering how much you've distanced yourself from him and really allowed yourself to move on from him. Um, it is in distance. I have not had any connections with him whatsoever since a few months ago. And um, I would think I still have feelings for him, but it is very wrong, wrong feelings because to begin with, it wasn't a good relationship. Um, he had a lot of problems with my family. He couldn't accept them, and that was a big issue for me. And uh, I'm a very much a family-oriented family girl, so... Um, that, that was one of the issues we had, like 50% of our problems was that. And so that's, that's over with. I wish that it could have been worked on and we could have dealt with it and get back together again. I'm willing to do that, even though it's been divorced. The divorce is done. But uh, Well, that's and that's the thing. Even the way you're talking about it, clearly you don't want to move on. So it's not just um, about can you or what's happening. It's like you don't want to move on because you still have hope that this is going to work out. And it's interesting, the issues you're bringing up that you had with him, again, it comes back to being too involved with family, which your first question is about your parents, and it seemed that you were taking on too much responsibility for them, both in what they're doing and just how they felt. And so it could be that this is your issue of not being able to have your own self in your own life, and you're to spread out with everyone else and losing yourself. So I'm feeling more that issue of codependency might be something that you deal with. And there's a book, Codependent No More by Melody Beatty, that um, she's not a psychologist, but she shares her own experience with it. And it's, it's a pretty good read, but you might get a lot out of that book and seeing that you can relate to that, that it's about not having your own sense of self, that relationships become too enmeshed and close and you become too involved for other people and feel too responsible for them. And because of that, feel guilt and also don't really get to live your own life fully. You never really have your own self and own life. Okay. The book that you mentioned, I have reviewed it. Okay. Um, yes, it is a great tool that I read. And um, as far as being codependent, I maybe a little bit I see that. It might be right. I do see that in myself. Mm-hmm. But also, I do take care of my life and okay. try to put time for my life and wanting to, uh, you know, have that for myself, the happiness, that special person in my life. Um, not wanting to move on, um, I I want to say, yes, you're right in that fact, just because um, you were with someone for such a long time and uh, now you have to start a new relationship, have to change out of that the relationship that you were, and I'm willing to take that risk. I'm willing to do that. I think it just takes a while. But I don't know, am I pushing myself too much? Am I forcing myself to do this? Um, sometimes I don't even want to get on those web- that, that particular website because I feel like it's a waste of time. But yet if I don't do it because I'm looking for an Iranian guy, 
that's the only option I have. Well, I mean, so I you you can go on other websites too and look for an Iranian guy on Match.com or whatever it is. But but again, going back to what I was saying before, you don't want to meet another guy. You want to meet your same guy again. You want to be with him, and uh, you can either see if that's possible. But if not, you really have to accept that it's over and move on. But until you're willing to accept that and move on, you won't be able to start something with anyone else. You won't because you won't want to. That's true. That's true. That's with the ex is done with. Obviously, he's moved on with someone else, and I don't want to get myself involved in that situation to reach out back to him. Or uh, it's, I don't think it's right. Um, he's living his life, and I'm very happy for him. But to doing for myself, I would like to get out there and obviously have the confidence to date and have the confidence to choose the right person for myself just because I feel like I'm vulnerable. I don't want to get into a relationship that is all wrong just because I have that loneliness or I want to be with somebody. Uh, I don't want to do that. So my question from you is, should I let go and just give up this dating website for a while and see, just focus on myself and see where life takes me? <laughs> well, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I not- yeah, I still feel like you haven't, I want you to let go, but not of the dating websites, but of him. I, I still feel like it's very clear from the way you talked about him that even you said, I wish we could work it out again, or I wish we could work on things, that as much as you're saying I'm happy for him and he's moved on and try, you know, making it sound like you've accepted it, I don't feel like you've accepted that he's gone and, and you don't want to move on. Almost like you're afraid to date someone new because you wouldn't have the chance to go back and be with him if he became available or if that was still an option. And maybe consciously you don't think that, but I think emotionally and unconsciously that's how it seems like you feel. Um, emotionally, yes, you're right. I have accepted that he's gone, and I have accepted that, you know, um, he's out of the out of my life. But emotionally, um, I would hope that he will come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, again, it's not possible because there's no way that we're going to reach out to each other. I don't want to put myself out there that he would reach out. I don't want to ruin his relationship with this young lady that he's in, and I don't think that's my place to do that. Uh, I don't want to start a love triangle. So mm-hmm. I'm very happy for him that he's moved on. I want to give my confidence. I, I feel like that as, even when I was talking to that uh, gentleman, that one that one and only date that I went on, uh, he even noticed that, that my confidence was very low. And um, he says that, you know, this, these days will pass by. You're going to get better. And he didn't necessarily, I tried to hide it from him. Obviously, he was smart enough that he found that. And, uh, and I said, uh, there's no connection between us, so it didn't. We ended that just one date. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what is it that I can do? Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say. So, when, with this issue with confidence, so what was your relationship like with your ex? Um, with the ex, we had a lot of uh, bickering through our relationship over a lot of. Um, um, not selfishness, but mostly we bickered a lot about little things, about family mostly. They would bring up my family a lot and, and blame me for the things that he doesn't have in life, saying that you have, you know, put in more for your family than me. You're married to your family than me. Um, so there was a lot of issues with him, too, in that part. And, you know, I had a lot of self-confidence issues with himself, very shallow, very... Um, I'm trying to look for a word, uh, 
he just didn't have that security with me. That's what he he kept telling me. I don't feel secure with you. Mm-hmm. So and uh, I just very um, it, we had a lot of issues towards the end of the relationship, mostly. Okay. Um, there were no the um, connection at home. The last year of our relationship there were no intimacy nothing and um i found that some things about him that he was disconnected from me um and we broke up a lot through our relationship we broke up a lot from the get-go um and got back together again and broke up got back together again so it was a lot of that a lot of miscommunication um a lot of uh, not wanting to um, if he said something that I would say, um, wanting to, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, just uh, wanting to wanting disagree. To I'm sorry. Like wanting to disagree. You guys would just find something you'd fight about everything. We did fight about a lot of things, yeah. mostly family issues, okay. mostly family issues. I would agree with him on a lot of the things because just, uh, I don't take things hard in life, especially when it comes to material. I'm not a materialistic person. So when he was like wanting to choose something for, um, you know, house or whatever, I would agree with it. Um, no problem. If he wanted to go out and eat, I would agree with it. No problem in that fact. But uh, then again, if I would bring something up, he wouldn't agree with it. He would be more hard on me regarding on making important decisions on life. Mm-hmm. And I would get that from an Iranian man perspective, wanting to have that head of the house feeling, you know, wanting to have that, those things. So I get it. And we saw a few therapists through our relationship. I think most of them, they said, I don't think this relationship is going to go anywhere. Well, that's but, And that's uh, how it sounds. Yeah. And I told you to tell me about the relationship and it, it was all bad things you talked about, but then yet you still want to have him back. Yeah, I think that's the vulnerability part of yeah. me. I think it's just, yeah, very vulnerable. That's why I kind of am afraid to put myself out there. Well, I think you're afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah, you're afraid to be vulnerable, right? Yeah. You're afraid so, to risk that. I, I don't want to put my- you, you know, like many people, you'd rather pick a misery you already know than to risk an unknown that could even be much better. Exactly. Yes, I don't want to. I'm being wise enough that I don't want to put myself through that again. Um, well, no, I'm saying like no. You'd rather you'd rather go back to him, a misery you already know, than to risk creating some risk and actually maybe create something much better for yourself, have something better. But the oh, ang- absolutely no. I'm willing to risk it. You're absolutely right. No, you. I understand. No, I, I hear. I hear your words. I hear your words. You're saying you want to risk it, but I don't think you feel ready to risk it. Yeah, that's I, the part. That probably is the problem. You yeah. seem you're a smart girl. You know what you're talking about. You know what makes sense. But I think emotionally, you're you're stuck in a lot of these ways that are holding you back. Um, even the fact that you liked this relationship that you're in it for ten years that's troubling. That it was you know lots of breakups, lots of fighting, bickering. Things weren't really going well. You know, even that to me is is kind of alarming. And I know you talked about going to therapists with him, but I would hope you would go to therapy yourself and really dig deep to understand what's going on with you, because oh, I have been. Okay, I have good. Been for the past two years. Okay, yeah, good. I well, have been seeing that. 
psychologist, absolutely. Okay. And it's been wonderful trying to get my confidence on a, on a very high level. Um, and at the end, he says, if I see you next time being so down like this, unfortunately, I might have to give you antidepressant. I said, I don't want that. Believe me, I don't need any antidepressant. I will do my best to get out of the mood. But I think it's that maybe the loneliness part. I, I'm trying to get more friends involved in my life. I do have a good connection of friends, long distance and mm -hmm. locally. But you know what I uh, what I just heard you say is I don't need the medications. I feel like you're someone who doesn't want to need anything. You don't like to have needs. You're used to taking care of other people. You don't want to need anything. And I think get taking care of yourself or even being in a relationship where the person is there for you is not easy either. So it, it, that's maybe part of the self-confidence is you're not sure you deserve to be treated so well at some level. You, consciously, I know you would say you do, but I feel like unconsciously or you know emotionally you don't feel like you do. So it's hard for you to put yourself out there and actually go yeah. after someone who would treat you well. That is true. But if they do, I would try to um, match that and put a little bit more on top of, it, top of it to be their kindness and treating me well. That's what I did with my ex. I always try to um, provide more than he did for me as yeah. far as love and giving him, yeah. Well, and that sounds that. good. You know, on the surface, that sounds good. You know, we want to... We want both partners to feel that way. They want to give even more than they get and be that way. But I think when it, the way you describe it, it's not just because you want to give to them because it feels good. Is that you'll feel really bad and guilty if you feel like they're giving more than you because you can't handle that. So I, I think that, you know, the codependent no more to me does seem to ring very true for you, the way you're describing yourself. And I would really focus on, it's not that you shouldn't date, but I'm glad you're going to therapy. I'd keep going if you, you're, you know, the therapist or psychiatrist thinks you would benefit from antidepressants, I wouldn't completely shy away from that. Do everything you could to help yourself in other ways too, but I wouldn't reject that. And and maybe you have to accept that you are depressed. And it's not just about confidence. We need to kind of, you know, get your groove back, so to speak. It's more no, about... No, no, I agree. Yeah. I think I'm it's more that you're down. So, you know, that's... And I think, you know, the two years that have passed... And like I said, it's what we do with the time because time heals. But clearly, you don't want to let go of this. Logically, you do, but you don't want to. It's too scary to let go of this and go out there in what feels like the dark abyss of meeting someone again and putting yourself out there. And also, I think the way you look at relationships, what you experience and what you expect and accept is to be treated poorly. So I don't ex anticipate that you're going to want to jump into something because it's kind of like, why jump into exactly. something like that? So, you know, there's a feeling of, I know you said friends and this and that's good, but the what you're setting yourself up for is a, a lot of loneliness. Yeah. And that's why I, I'm glad you're going to therapy even, you can up the therapy so you're going more often because you really got to dig deep and figure out what's so scary about getting close for you and, and what is it that makes you create the relationships you do. And codependency always is going to come down to a lack of, self-esteem is a big part of it and just not feeling like you're enough just being you and that someone would love you and yeah. want to be with you even if you weren't taking care of them more than they were taking care of you or, or serving them in some way that you're enough just mm -hmm. yourself that's true yeah i totally i see that in myself i um 
not having that self-confidence is depressed. You're absolutely right. I'm not in denial that I'm mm-hmm. not depressed. I, I am, but I don't think I just need the medication for it. It's not that uh, to that point that I need to be taking medicine. I do exercise regularly. I do the things that it makes me feel happy for myself. Uh, but yet the loneliness, I would think it's gotten me down. Mm-hmm. And I used to actually really enjoy myself being alone, no problem, until, um, I don't know, until this has happened. So maybe I am in denial. Maybe I need to open up my eyes more. And, and, and you're right. Maybe I should just accept the fact that this is what's going on and get help for it. Yeah. Further help. I think, yeah, I think getting help for you is not easy. Like I said, having needs is not easy. And to be a human and then to be in relationships, we have to accept help and accept that we have needs. And I think it's not not easy for you to to accept those things. So, um, you know, we started off talking about your parents. And like I said, I think the more you can let go of them and focus on you, the better and just accept that you're not responsible for how they feel and to make them happy because maybe they just won't be happy no matter what you do or anyone does anyway. And make sure you focus on you and see if, are you happy? What do you want? And keep going to therapy, keep working on yourself and look at what's there. And you might have to accept that really you have to make some closure between you and your ex if you want to actually give yourself the chance to move on. And in therapy, you can even explore what's holding you back from that. Some of it might be the fear of the unknown and putting yourself out there. And you'd rather accept a comfort zone that was painful than to try to put yourself out there again. But I hope you'll give yourself that chance to create something new and something better for yourself. Exactly. Just, um, I know that you have a lot of callers waiting, but uh, I'm going to ask you an alarming question, a red flag question that has to do a lot with the confidence. In case if my ex does reach out to me, which I doubt it, um, his relationship didn't go well with his girlfriend or they broke up for whatever reason, um, I know that I would want him to come back to my life. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a wise decision, or should I give it another chance, and should I maybe both of us work on this and be a better sources of health? Uh, what is your suggestion? Well, I mean, I think you kind of know the answer, and you already know what I'm going to say, which is that it seems like that the relationship was not good, and you went to a few therapists who all told you this is not going to work out. So, and I think it also shows, like I said, you're still hoping and wishing for this. And I know you said you're happy for him and want want things to work out for him, but it doesn't make you a bad person to hope that they break up and he comes back to you because that's what you want. Um, yeah. yeah. Right? That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Exactly. I'm very happy for him. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I know you care about him, so it's not like you want bad for him, but really what you feel like is, well, I want him to be with me. That's, and that's that's what you feel, yeah. and you have to acknowledge that and not, you know, just, we, you know, we can say the cliche lines, but we want to be honest with ourselves. So, I mean, I think clearly from everything you described, the relationship was not going to work out. We're not going to work out. There was too much that was not going to be there. You described a pretty bad relationship. So I think you know that. But to me, it's more important for you to understand why do I get drawn to this bad relationship when I know it's so painful and it doesn't work. Something about that seems comfortable for you or seems right, even if it doesn't feel good. And that's what I'm more concerned about. Is why does this relationship have appeal for you? But yeah, exactly. if you ask me, from, like from what, what you told me, it doesn't seem like it would be a good idea. And especially I wouldn't want you to hold your breath for that either. Again, it's not a, you're not allowing yourself to move on. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I appreciate your... Thanks um, for calling. Yeah, good luck. 
Thank yeah. Focus Thank you on so you. Much. Take care of yourself and yeah, keep working uh, on it. And hopefully, uh, call me back and let me know how you're doing. Okay. You got it, Doctor. Great show. Thank oh, you. Oh, thank so you. Much. Have a great day. day. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, you too. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. You're listening to In Session with Doctor Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back, you know, with the last caller, um, I'm really happy that she called. And first, we were talking about her parents and issues she was having there. But I was glad, as I mentioned, that she made it about herself. And we talked about her and what she was going through in relationship to her previous relationship, and if she could get herself ready to have another relationship. Um, but it brings up this issue of fear of intimacy, and f- fear of intimacy is one of those terms or phrases we can kind of easily use and say, oh, he or she has a a fear of intimacy. But when it comes down to it, we all have a fear of intimacy to a degree. And also we can say that we all have a desire for intimacy and a fear of intimacy, kind of like two sides of a coin, because we all have that desire to feel close to someone, to feel connected, to feel someone loves us, to feel like they um, understand us and see us for who we are. But also when we create intimacy, we risk getting hurt. And that can be very scary. And actually, I'm excited. I haven't gotten a chance to start the book yet for this week that I'll talk about next week, Together Closer uh, by Giovanni Frazetto. That's the book of the week for this week, The Art and Science of Intimacy and Friendship, Love and Family. I'm very interested to see what he has to say about this issue. But we know that when we create intimacy, it is a risk. And it always is that. And we have to accept that. And so we have to be aware that we have this desire for intimacy and we have this fear of it. Or this idea that when you ask people, they say, I want to get married. But then if you look at what they're doing in their lives, they don't seem to move towards that. And usually what's holding them back is this fear of getting close to someone. Because when we look at love and marriage now, it's very different than it was before. Before, it was basically a given that you had to get married. There wasn't really a choice. So it was just expected that when you got to a certain age, you'd start looking and you would get married. Women needed the men because they were dependent on them financially to take care of them. And men wanted to have a family. And it was just the accepted way that you just get married. But now we see that it's much more of a choice. Both men and women don't have to get married. And they many of them cho- are choosing not to. And so because it's a choice... Many people become comfortable in their own lives, and so they kind of wonder, and again, consciously, they might say they want it, but unconsciously, there's this idea of, well, it's scary, and there's a risk of getting close with someone and getting married, and it's a lot safer, and my life is okay as it is, so that ambivalence keeps them from taking that action in that direction of getting married, and they stay in that comfort zone. And when we stay in our comfort zone, it gives us three uns. We are unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. We don't feel good and we don't reach really 
the best or the most of what we can in our lives. So many people are choosing. Now you can, again, not want to get married because it really isn't right for you. You're not quote unquote marriage material. And that, if you recognize that, you should do that. But I think there's many, many other people who it's less about the fact that they don't want to get married and really they wouldn't be good in a marriage, but more that they're afraid and they don't want to take that risk. So we have to be willing to take that risk of getting close to someone. Yes, it's scary. Yes, we can get hurt. There's no guarantee that it's going to work. But if we really recognize that desire for intimacy, we'll see that hopefully it's worth that risk or we'll see that we can decide that it's worth that risk. And although there's no guarantee, I'm going to try anyway because that's the only way we can achieve what we ultimately desire, which is to be close to someone. And it is scary because if you really show someone your true self, and that's what we mean by intimacy isn't just a surface relationship. It means you really get deeper with them on an emotional level. What makes it even scarier is like, well, if I show someone my true colors, if I show them who I am and then they reject me, that's going to hurt real deep. Because if I just show myself someone my mask or just uh, surface level things, they can only hurt me so much because I'll know that even if they rejected me, it won't be all of me. And that's what makes it so scary. And when we risk intimacy, it's kind of like we're going up a mountaintop. And the higher you go, the more treacherous it gets, and also the further you can fall down. But also the more beautiful the view that you see, the higher you go. And that's how I like to think of intimacy. Sometimes I think of it also as the depth of the ocean because we're getting deeper in the relationship. But I also like this analogy of going up a mountain. And so if you don't want to risk too much, you just go up a few steps. Yeah, you can't really fall too far down. You can't really get hurt much. But you also don't experience much or see much. But if you really are willing to take that risk to keep going up together with your partner, then yes, there is the risk of falling even further now because you're closer, because the relationship is deeper, because you feel more attached to them. All those things that actually make a relationship beautiful are what make it hurt so much when or if it does not work out. But if you're willing to take that risk, you climb higher and higher, and then you get to see an incredibly beautiful view. And in this case, that view is that experience you share with your partner because of that relationship you've created, which is really the ultimate that we have in human interaction is having that extremely intimate emotional relationship with someone else. So we have to accept the risk. Like anything, if you want to reward you, almost always you're going to have to accept some level of risk and also some level of challenge and hard work. And to build a relationship does take hard work. It's going to have its challenges and it's going to have its risks. But you have, you have to ask yourself, do I think it's worth it? And hopefully you'll decide that it is and you'll try to create that for yourself and dare greatly to risk being hurt because you want to create something beautiful with someone else. Uh, so again, that relates to the book of the week this week, Together Closer by Giovanni Frazetto, which I'll talk about on Monday's show. And again, a big thank you to Dr. Rachel Herz, the author of Why You Eat What You Eat, who was joining me at the beginning of today's show to talk about her great book. Hope you'll check that one out too. All right, we've reached the end of today's show. Thank you for everyone who called in and to Raman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful day.